What's good? My name is Hector Oliveira, and you know I'm always with the man on a mission to find nutrition, the Polynesian Papa of Pump, Big Body Say, Say Say Liua, Say Say what is up, man? How are you? Good, man. How are you doing? I'm feeling good. You know, we had a a long break over 4th of July. I think we took a little bit of a vacation here, but I'm doing Mm -hmm. well, man. That last episode, I've I've actually had a chance to listen to it, and uh, I did come off a little hard on Lance Armstrong, so... uh, I'm not going to take anything uh-huh. back or, or recant anything, but you know what? I feel like I did come cool. off a little uh, a little angry at him, unnecessarily angry. Yeah, you know. I mean, I didn't sense that, but it's because he lied. That's the thing. I know you don't like liars, bro. Yeah, I feel you. You know, at the end of the day, fuck that guy. Uh, without bringing this episode down too much, I'm, I'm actually more excited to have a full episode dedicated to a pretty legendary figure and and, uh, i just brought up fourth of july weekend a little bit earlier around fourth of july we all think about heroes american heroes you know our forefathers who fought for our independence and the soldiers and and american lives that paid the cost so we can be free and celebrate freely on the fourth of july but there are also some american heroes that i guess kind of fly under the radar because they're not really associated with fighting a war or winning major battles At the end of the day, they're American. They definitely have done things to save lives. And overcoming fear to be someone who is a harbinger for uh, life and living. Yeah, you know, I think think it's always good to, you know, create testament to those who came before us and led the way, you know, paved the way, showed us what good discipline is and reminded us of good values and just how to work hard. Someone to look up to. You know, there's always somebody there, hopefully... You know, it's like, who do you look up to? You know, at some point, you know, you got to pass the torch. That's exactly right. Today's episode, we're covering the legendary Eddie Aikau, one of the first ever native Hawaiian professional big wave surfers. He was also the very first person. That's right. Hawaii. 20 foot up. (laughs) He was also the very first person to lifeguard Waimea Bay. He's noted as a direct descendant of the high priest of King Kamehameha one of the most iconic heroes of the Hawaiian Islands, a man who lives in in surfing lore. I guess what I want to go into with with this story is there's a common thread throughout the story of Eddie Aikau of fear, how fear actually manifests itself, uh, whether it be um, racial prejudices, misunderstandings that lead to fear, and ultimately, you know, fear that comes from elemental forces and the fear of uh, life and death or death itself. But this story has it all. Um, it also goes into a piece of Americana that not a lot of us dig into. Yeah, you know, fear is a sum of a gun, you know? Something that we all got to live with, something that we all cope with differently. And to be able to face it and, you know, overcome that is a great feat. Not everybody gets to experience. It, it holds people back. But can we change that? Absolutely. Can we change how, how scared we are? I, I believe so. That's what I'm thinking of when I when I hear about what Eddie Aikau did yes, for sir. his people, for yep. his culture, for his way of life, and for his belief. 100%. We'll get into it in today's episode on Talking Some Beep. Muscle. Welcome, friends, family, lovers, haters, them haters that love to hate and lovers that hate to love. Guess what? You all have a place with us here. We can call you friend on Talking Some Muscle. I'm with Seisei Liyua. Seisei, you ready to do this, man? Yeah, brother. I see the waves over there, brah. Ready to rip them, brother. Just gonna rip the lid, brah. Aloha, <laughs> Aloha brother. Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to be careful today because I don't know much about the Hawaiian Islands. I've never been. I don't know much about the surfing culture because I, I didn't grow up in the culture and it's not something that is part of my lineage. Not, uh, you know, being Hispanic, we don't get off. Hey, pinche Carlos, get your surfboard. Hey, let's go surf. I don't think you hear that sentence in that. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have to remember that this is a, a show called uh, Talking Some Muscle where we talk fitness But we also talk feats of fitness, and behind every feat of fitness is a story. 
And I think we're going to do our best today to tell the story of Eddie Aikau. Yeah, I can so help I'm, you out a little bit um, in like that I grew up in a Samoan culture because my dad's straight from the island of Samoa. Yeah. You know, Samo- Samoans say brada. Like, what's up, brada? But Hawaiians, so for this episode, I'll say bra because the Hawaiians say bra. bra. So if you hear somebody in Hawaii, you're on vacation in Hawaii, he goes, what's up, brada? It's usually Samoan. That's Samoan. Or he might think you're Samoan. Or they'll Just say. Just depend on how much you're eating. Yeah. Samoans so also say oos, right? Oos. <laughs> oh, that's brother, yeah. So, oos. But, I mean, the, the dialect. So, like, if you say, what's up, bra? That's a that's a Hawaiian thing to do, as opposed to, what's up, brother? Uh-huh. Like subtle. It. Subtle, but effective. Very subtle. Yeah. Very effective. They got, us, they got us labeling ourselves now, bro. I don't know who they <laughs> is, brother, but yeah, as soon as I go. find them, bra. bra. Watch, out, watch out with your <laughs> racial stereotypes right now, man. It's going down. Anyway, uh, that actually leads us right into, we're going to, I guess, jump right into the, the pre-conversation here. And what I'd like to do is actually just talk a little bit about Hawaii, the islands of Hawaii. And here's the cool thing about my conversation piece is it's real short. Because uh, I've never been. I've only seen it in pictures and heard people talk about it and all that other fun stuff about you should go. But the more I learn about it, the historical nuggets of knowledge about Hawaii, the more I feel like um, I think I might wait until I'm actually invited by a native islander. I don't know. What what are your thoughts? Well, you know, Hector, that's a great question. And it's something that I really haven't given much thought to. But <laughs> since you asked, maybe we, we, we don't realize that we racially stereotype Hawaiians a lot. Like if you take that movie 50 First Dates or any other movie where they're trying to portray hula dancers or luau's it's like, oh, okay, hola, hola, hola. you know, you know, nobody nobody wants to cry about that cuz usually we just we just laugh at it by the end of the day and say, "Ah, that's just how the world is, man." So they they can get the short end of the stick, but as far as going and visiting Hawaii, I mean, that might be more political in nature cuz some people feel they did get taken over inappropriately and maybe there's cultural misappropriation <laughs> that's like the biggest word i used all year bro there you go but Boom. uh i i think that for the most part if you want to get down to it uh there was some shady biz that happened with hawaii so i yeah. think you should visit though i don't think you should hold back it, it because i don't i don't think you should be afraid bro i think if you asked me eddie would go it's one of those situations where it's like i always feel that food tastes better whenever someone else lovingly cooks it and serves it up for you and plates it i also feel like an invite is always better i don't know it's one of those things where i'd actually love to be invited by a native so if anybody out there is from the the islands of hawaii listening shoot me an invite man i'm gonna pack my bags get my sunscreen take my fucking mexican ass there and come pay you a visit yeah you know that's that's a good actually that's a good thing right there Hector I think you'll be welcome with open arms just to have that much mindfulness and uh here's why because I forgot somebody did mention like it's a big reason on why you're going somewhere that matters because yeah the world is here for us but some places are like war torn or some places are you know facing real troubles and if you go over there with a with a mindset like I'm just vacationing or I'm just here to learn a couple weeks. I just want to see what it's like. Like you go over there and like people say there's a problem with that. They will say, "Oh, you just wanted to go visit," you know, as opposed to enthralling yourself in the community or you know, even if you're just trying to go there to learn the language. Uh, yeah. You know, if you're coming over there just to say, "I want to see your beaches. I want to taste your meats. I want to drink your juices. Give me, give me, give me." I, I see what you're saying. Like, yeah, people might not like that. Well, America, America. And yeah, here's the thing is we, we're coming off of the heels of Fourth of July. I know it's it's too uh, too crazy to get too political on a fitness podcast. But you know what? Some episodes warrant it. And when we talk uh, the life and times of Eddie Ical, I think we have to do the due diligence and handle the political side of of the story and make sure we cover all of those notes and, and all of the political undertones and overtones and everything that contributed to, to his story. And I think it would be a, a doing a disservice if we left that shit out, you know? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, my, my homeboys from Hawaii, they'd be like, all right. That means good. It's like period, like, all right. Before we get into the amazing story of Eddie Aikau and his impact on the Hawaiian Islands, we may have a little re-racking to do. And I guess the only thing we left out from the last episode, I pretty much motherfucked Lance Armstrong from pillar to post, which is okay. 
I'm fine with that. Yeah, but sorry think, about that, Lance. <laughs> I think what we left out is what the uh, what the guy's up to today. And if I were to re-rack anything, it would be to just finish off his story. Right now, he's working with a venture capitalist firm. So it's like this large investment firm that uh, takes your money and puts it somewhere here. We're going to transfer it over to the and it's gone. So uh, mm-hmm. he now knows how to fucking professionally lose everybody else's money. So that's cool. Uh, the, the other thing he's doing is uh, he was most recently on an NBC uh, segment, NBC Sports, and he was talking about how he's at peace with his consequences and the lifelong commitment he faces now of rebuilding his name. Yeah, you know what? I guess I guess I can give him props for making peace with uh, the decisions he made. You know, he he lived a life that not a lot of us can say. So I'll give him props for that. He's owning up to it finally. I think that's, there's some honorability in, in turning back around and saying, you know, I own up to my shit. And if yeah. it takes me a lifetime to rebuild it and to and to put my name back in a good place, then I'm going to commit myself to that. So uh, I guess that's yep. what I'll re-rack now. He's he's definitely doing the, the things he needs to do to own up to it, uh, you know, take his stripes. So there you go. That is, man, beautifully said, dude. That's so re-racked. Where's yep. that sound at? It is. Uh, re-racked all right man we're gonna dive right into eddie Ical. i'm excited about this episode say say i know you're excited about this episode we're not gonna do a muscle up buttercup today because i feel like this whole episode is gonna serve as a muscle up buttercup for all those out there that are dealing with fear being treated yes. being treated poorly out of unfairly. fear unfairly yeah preach um so this will be a muscle up buttercup to everyone out there so let's get this started man uh Here's how we'll start the story. Um, I think I want to go into uh, just a little bit of a brief history on Hawaii. 1959, Hawaii. Hawaii. taken over by the white man. Yeah, Hawaii taken over by the white. Well, the annexation in Hawaii, they were, they were there for a while. You're right. It was first established as a military outpost. In 1959, Hawaii becomes a state. So it's now a um, South United States territory. And with that, we got to take into account the boom of tourism and a, uh, a go-to site of the beautiful Hawaiian islands um, of, from Americans and from people across the world because everybody's trying to get to that beautiful paradise that they call the Pacific Islands. And the people are beautiful, I agree. I guess the Hawaiian culture calls it mana, which is a, a, a spiritual presence amongst the islands. So it definitely does give you this over or the all these uh, beautiful spiritual overtones about the uh, Hawaiian islands that makes them very attractive. But underneath that, you have to look at the exploitation of the islands after the islands became a United States territory. And uh, and you know I don't think life was too much different from Eddie Aikau than it is now for most Hawaiian people dealing with tourists. Let's change gears now and, and get into Eddie Aikau. Born May fourth, nineteen forty six. Eddie Aikau was the son of Solomon. And Henrietta Aikau, and one of six children. So there are six of the Aikau family members. Big, beautiful Hawaiian family. Born in 1946. From what I said earlier, 1959, Hawaii becomes a state. So that would put Eddie right at about 15 years old, 14, right around there, when Hawaii becomes a state and the tourism kicks off. So when you take into account of that, think of where you grew up, they say, and then all of a sudden, like you're 15 years old. And then all of a sudden, everything changes. Now you're not allowed in areas where you used to go into and all that other stuff. I mean, how do you think you would respond to something like that? Or, or not just you personally, but what do you think a normal person would respond like in that in, in that kind of change? You know, they probably wouldn't like it. So, you know, they probably would uh, have some animosity build up and probably just be overall uh, struggling to stay in a good mood. Yeah, and it makes perfect sense, I believe, to, to respond like that. I think... There's that initial fear on both sides, right? There's the fear of the unknown person. You know, we're going into someone else's place. Maybe they won't like me. And there's the fear of them coming into your place. What if they take something that I hold dear out here because, you know, they feel like they have the financial right to overtake that. And I think that's what happened during those times. Well, I don't think that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. People came in with the financial right to put up hotels and make all these tourist sites because they wanted to bring commerce to the Hawaiian people. And this is where the first bit of fear and maybe misunderstanding comes into play. Like you finally make this place a state and then the tourism boom starts. And maybe the intention is, well, these Hawaiian people got it wrong. They're living third world lives. We need to bring modern commerce. We need to bring modern way of life. And we need to expose the Hawaiian people to the United States economy at full force to help them out because they need our help. 
to take an approach like that, of course, is, you know, marred in a little bit of bigotry that you're not doing shit right because you're a different color, you're a different race, you're a different people. We do shit right because we're the United States. So we're going to come show you guys how to improve your your day-to-day life because we know the best ways to do it. You know, I don't, I don't know what, what caused them to set up shop, you know, in Hawaii. Uh, but I think you had it right on the head. It has something to do with maybe fear, fear-based. You want to have a base out there, which is kind of why, uh, you know, I think that any one of those co- consequential actions happened. I think you could probably link a lot of actions uh, being done to fear because I think a lot of actions that we do are flight. There's either fight or flight. So the actions that we do are to fight something or f- flee from it, flight, like, Okay, so we got a base there. Now we have people here. Oh my gosh, you know, we're gonna have to feed these people. Let's give them food. But like, it was more framed so, like in the tourist light. So, you know, you gotta have you gotta have the convenience. When I'm over here on a tourist vacation, I'm gonna be afraid that I'm not gonna be able to eat what I want or you know something like that. So, um, I think it's also for business owners fear of missing out. Like I don't want to miss out on this opportunity. People go to Hawaii like, Oh, I want to go see what the beautifulness is all about. So, uh, let's cram, let's cram some, uh, barbecue down their throats, you know, feed them up, <laughs> you know, build a resort. So yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to have, I don't want to miss out on this money making opportunity kind of. Yeah. Well, in a sense. exactly. And when people are putting money in, in different places in those times, I guess that's that's what you play on. You play on the fears of the investors. A lot of times fear in those situations removes the importance of human life and human way of life. And I think that's the biggest story or I guess the, the biggest backstory uh, of this recalling of Eddie Aikau's life. Um, well, you yeah. also mentioned something good where you said you're not allowed in places anymore. Because that, that, that's something that would upset you. But, you know, what what I think you – I mean, what do you mean by that? Because uh, they did try to shove them in the back is what you're saying. Like, oh, you guys are like – Okay, yeah. So, so to, circle, to circle back around to that, whenever the tourism expansion took off in Hawaii, the natives and the Hawaiian locals weren't really allowed on, on uh, tourist or resort uh, properties. And they were actually pushed off a lot. And there's there's still, believe it or not, some, some organizations and some – um, resorts that do the same thing in places like Jamaica and pretty much all around the Caribbean, but especially in Hawaii, that you know, it is it is a U.S. state, it is a U.S. territory. There was a big push in the '60s to keep local Hawaiian Islanders off of the beaches that were going to be frequented by tourists, and it was because they had a fear that the Hawaiians, the local Hawaiians there were going to be too third world looking or too tribal or they're going to look, they're basically going to make their property look bad. The only Hawaiians that they wanted on property were the ones that were being paid to dance, sing, or perform. You know, that's that's a tragic thing that the owners and the developers of these resorts only saw the Hawaiian people as a prop, entertainment. They saw these human lives as, I guess, human capital, if you want to put it that way. So... It's kind of like going in there and saying, nope, we don't want you to be like this. We want you to be this way because it benefits our resort. It benefits our business. So go ahead and leave out this part of your culture and we'll go ahead and take this part of the culture. Once again, you have the fear of the of the unknown and, and fear of losing revenue based off of not knowing what you're going to get from a culture that we've absorbed as a state. Do you have anything you want to add to that? I think that we got a little off track uh, about what what Eddie is and who he is and what he did. Like, I mean, in yeah. simple terms, like the man is a legend. He's yeah. a surfer that stuck to his guns uh, amidst all of the chaos that was going on. Yeah. And like he, he became a world champion, world-class surfer of big waves. And he basically also was one of the first people to become a lifeguard on that beach. I forgot which one it was. Why, why he may have been. But yeah. Let's, let's go ahead and, right. and why, circle back around. Thanks for keeping us on, on topic. Well, but uh, let's change gears here, and then let's let's actually talk about Eddie Aikau's childhood. Uh, so here's the crazy here's the crazy facts about Eddie Aikau's childhood that I found interesting uh, when I read about this. The rising costs of of Hawaiian land forces family to uh, move to Oahu, and it's an interesting way they found a home. So basically, here's what happened: Eddie Aikau's dad took a position keeping the grounds of a cemetery. Uh, for free lodging so they had a free home on a freaking cemetery 
now here's you there are pictures now if you go online and look up eddie i cow's childhood home you'll see pictures of his house and literally like 12 feet to the left there's a, a gravestone so what, what do you think that childhood would have been like i mean would you what i'll just ask you i'll just ask you point blank would you want to live on a cemetery say say oh i forgot dude no <laughs> that's right that's right uh, you know what my parents would have been all like live, yeah go ahead they live on a cemetery bro no nah, i don't think i would want to live on that i don't know why there's <laughs> just something about it bro like well, think about it this way it like the way, the way my parents were they would scare the shit out of me and we lived in like a, a suburban home down in in uh good old central valley so they would still scare me they'd be like hey the cuckoo's outside. Mexicans say the cuckoo. That's the Mexican boogeyman. I'm like, watch out, cuckoo's. Remember, imagine if I'm on a freaking cemetery. The shit that they would be telling me, They're like, hey, listen, you're a little dickhead today. So you see that gravestone over there? The person that's buried in that gravestone is a murderer of little Mexican kids. So you're fucked tonight because you're bad. You better pray and you better be good for the next year. Oh, the power of the stories, bro. <laughs> then you go to school and share that, and they're like, "What?" <laughs> they would. My you parents would say, "Bro, yeah, I, I don't think I could do it growing up." But his family lived on on a cemetery. The name of the cemetery was Yi King Tong Cemetery. It was a Chinese cemetery. Uh, yeah. So you're freaking. Uh, you're a detective, man. True detective, bro. You bust out <laughs> these facts. I'm like, where do you get them? I thought I had all the Eddie facts, bro. Little factoid. <laughs> but here, check this out. Like, think this is where I guess the first experience of fear comes into place. You live that close to death, right? People are in the ground. People are dead on the property that you grow up in. So there's some elemental fear in that. You know, fear of the reality of life and death. And growing up as a kid, you imagine them playing kid games in a cemetery, right? Without fear. Like, that was just life for them growing up on a cemetery. Like, you think of a family, if you think of a family growing up on a cemetery, you would think of, like, the fucking Adams family or some weird gothic family. But these were, like, happy, smiling, having fun, partying Hawaiian people. It wasn't like these goths or uh, death metal listening devil worshippers that would love to live on a fucking cemetery because they're weirdos. This was a family that said, okay, I'll take the uh, free lodging for my six kids and my wife. And we'll upkeep the grounds of the cemetery, and that's the that's the trade off. So it's just it's just an interesting it's an interesting fact, and I think you find it a lot with people who work so closely to death how how much um, actual joy and life they actually have. Well, you know, Hector, you're 100 percent right. You know, every time I feel that uh, people come about a change, it's for several reasons, and usually it's a life or death or rock bottom situation. So yeah, I think that. You always freaking steal the words, bro. Like you said, at one hundred, man. Like it'll teach you a thing or two if you have to live in a cemetery. Oh, yeah. Shoot, yeah. You know, well, uh, scared of, of what? Well, well I'm gonna the end f- up there, but I'm gonna do what I gotta do. Think of the fear management you'd have to have at such a young age. It's like Eddie, go get my hat. It's in my truck, and you got to pass like five fucking gravestones to get your dad's hat out of his truck. And I you're like, know, Fuck, dude. Man, I got to go get my dad's hat out of his truck. I fucking got to pass this guy right here, old man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nothing's scaring you, bro. Like whatever. <laughs> Halloween, so, they win already. They win. Yeah, right. They, their decorations are set. <laughs> Fuck it. Um, but yeah, the fear management is there, and I think that's one thing we have to attribute Eddie's presence in this story is you know his childhood. That's the his perfect up, up, program, up bro. Hey, for gimmicks, bro, we gotta we gotta blow that up, dude. Cemetery we gotta make shirts yeah. with all the gimmick, with all the gimmicks on there. So <laughs> one shirt will be one shirt will be the, the the family program, bro. You guys just need to be. Uh, we got a cemetery. Well, you guys spend a month on there. You guys are gonna live on a cemetery, bro. Get tougher, mentally tougher. And we're not gonna give yeah. you tools to lower the caskets. You're gonna have to do it just with your bare hands. Yes, that's a deadlift right there. So right. you call it deadlifting, bro. Deadlift in the cemetery, bro. <laughs> That's the gimmick. Deadlifting in the cemetery makes you tougher. Gimmicks, bro. <laughs> you haven't deadlifted until you lifted in the cemetery. <laughs> I'm going to make the Halloween shirt for that, man. That sounds that's funny. Let's do it. Fuck it. All right. Let's keep it rolling. 1961, Eddie Aikau discovers surfing. Let's talk about the natural ownership that the Hawaiian people have to the waters. History and, and throughout time, the Hawaiian people are depicted as wave riders. So this is something that is in his blood. This is something that, you know, is is throughout his the history of his people. So there's a natural call 
and there's natural ownership and stewardship of the waters. One of their senators from Hawaii said that where most people are afraid of the crashing waves, the Hawaiian people run to them and try to be a part of them. There's that natural call. Eddie dropped out of school as a youth. I think that goes back to that balance of fear of the unknown, right? If I drop out of school, I'm afraid I won't get a job. I'm afraid I won't have a future. But at a young age, I think Eddie already knew his place. He knew he was had to do something in the water. And he knew that was his going to be his profession, right? The calling of that water, the calling of the surf. But he had an agreement with his dad. His dad said, okay, if you want to drop out of school, you got to get a job. So Eddie worked at the Dole Pineapple factory. And well, as soon as he would get out of work or off of work, he would basically spend all night at the cannery and then all day at the surf. And he surfed at the uh, the walls or he learned his surfing uh, trade at the walls beach in Waikiki. And he quickly became the king of that surf. But there was a separate calling across the island, and it was over at Waimea Bay, where a lot of the the surfing aficionados around the world, the professional surfers from around the world, would frequent because of the size and intensity of the waves. You would get anywhere from 20 to 40 feet. Every type of wave was there at Waimea, but most most importantly, it was the, the mecca of big wave surfing in Hawaii. You know... Uh... I like I like when uh, you describing the waves as like twenty feet, cause like it's always cool too when you hear them say that like the twenty footer bra, <laughs> bra ripping the lip on a twenty footer bra, no problem bra. Yeah, <laughs> the thing is you don't realize how big twenty or forty foot waves is when you think of like a uh, a two story home is about mm-hmm. uh, thirty feet. So if you go up like another story, like a three, a three to four, maybe even four to five story home is where you find that uh, 40 foot mark or macking out 40 plus mark of, of a wave. Bro, so, macking on a 20 foot up, bro. <laughs> fucking. <laughs> I, just, I mean, it just sounds, it sounds bigger when they say fura. Yeah, it does. Well, the fucking. The wave was right around 20 feet this. I've been know, in. 20 I've foot been in, <laughs> I've been in six to 10 foot waves, and I was like, these are too fucking big. I'm going to die. Bruh. I can't even imagine. Bruh, those are bigger than six foot. <laughs> They're six foot, bro. I can't even imagine staring at a fucking 40 foot wave and going, yeah, I'm going to paddle out into that. The thought would not cross my mind once again. Bro, Holly one it. pound. Holly one pound, bro. <laughs> but yeah, so Waimea Bay is historic for its beach. It's also historic for the uh, first ever Duke. Kahanamoku, or the Duke Uh-oh. Surfing Contest. Did I pronounce that properly? Okay, okay. I don't know. I, I, so I, was, I was scared, bro. I never said that because of fear, bro. Like, because I'm of so fear. scared to mispronounce that name. The I Duke, never said it. Duke I just said, yeah, Duke the King, you know, Duke. Uh, mm-hmm, <laughs> so this is an important... Duque. <laughs> so yeah, 19... 19- El, el Duque. Mira, it's El Duque. Pinche Duque. So uh, this is an important <laughs> surfing event because this is the first ever big wave, big professional surfing contest to be held in Hawaii. It's 1965, right? So you think, man, this is going to be a great thing for the Hawaiian people. They're going to bring out some of the local surfers, the local talent, and put a full showcase on what the Hawaiian islands have to offer from a culture, from a people from an everything standpoint and put Hawaiian on the world stage. This was a big thing for the Hawaiian people. And uh, guess how many Hawaiians were invited to the very first Duke contest? 25? No. Fucking zero. All the surfers there were South African. So (laughs) (laughs) you you have a Hawaiian surfing contest. You have it named after a legendary Hawaiian, but you have no Hawaiians there. So Eddie wasn't invited or any other hawaiian surfers well why the fuck not you know if it's put on a national stage and it's in hawaii it's in hawaiian waters why don't we do that even though even though eddie and his brothers and another local hawaiian surfer would frequent waimea bay and take on the biggest gnarliest waves that anyone would try or see there all right, so on the in the first Duke contest, right, you got these big waves, right? But the South Africans are surfing the they're surfing the intermediate waves. Granted, they're still fucking big waves, like you know anything fifteen to twenty five feet. They're these big waves. But during the breaks, when the bigger waves would come, the forty footers, no one was out surfing those or taking those waves. But here's what happened in that first Duke contest: Eddie and some other local Hawaiian surfers showed up without an invite. They're locals. And they picked the waves that no one else was surfing. You got to look at it this way. You have the pros, right? The professionals there that are holding the contest, sitting out the large waves while the locals paddle out 
into these big 30 to 40 fucking foot waves. And it's crazy when you think about like why they weren't invited and the reasons behind it, but they show up anyway, because that natural calling to the water, you know, it's their waters. They're going to wait for their waves. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful. Like think of the, the purpose you have in your life. You know, sometimes you got to wait for your wave to catch, you know, the waves that no one else does, the ones that are meant for you. And there's a lot of purpose and, and calling in this story that I want a lot of us to grasp onto and, and take note of because your wave might come one of these days and you got to be fit enough to take it. strong fitness of soul, fitness of mind, body has to be fit. So you have to be in that place to take that wave because those waves are meant for no one else than you. You're saying some, you're saying some real like hundred percent knowledge, truth on a real type shit. Fire, like preach, keep on speaking that shit, bro. That's how we do it. I'm talking some muscle. All right, so check it out. Eddie and his brother fucking make such a big impression that the very next year, 1966, Eddie gets an invite and uh, finally competes at the Duke. But he doesn't come home with a championship. He finishes sixth place. But this would actually start, I guess you want to call it putting the Hawaiian surfer on the national scale. Throughout the 60s, you know, Eddie, Eddie does his uh, first big wave competition. He does his first Duke in 1966. But throughout the 60s, Eddie starts becoming this icon and this uh, public figure in Hawaii. Eddie caught the eye of a lot of photographers, a lot of magazines there with his dark skin, his beautiful red surfboard, his uh, white shorts with a red stripe, and he just stuck out from everyone else. So when he took a wave, he looked different. He, It was just kind of that, and everybody talks about it, the mana, he belonged there. That was his purpose. People do that sport for you know, fun. They do it because, you know, they, they're really good at it. They've gone pro. They feel like that's their uh, purpose, right? So that's why people do that sport. Eddie did the sport because that was his lineage. That was his blood. That was his, that was his calling. You know, those were, those were his, his waves, so to speak. It's just a different presentation of the surfing athlete at the time compared to the backdrop of all the South Africans. You see this Hawaiian cutting through the waters on the biggest waves, you know, surfing with, the ferocity mm. of you know old wave riders in the 60s um freaking eddie man in the 60s eddie was known for his legendary graveyard parties so fuck dude they were dancing on people's graves too like <laughs> think of the peace you have to have with like the universe to be able to throw a party dance on a wave how many girls do you guys think he like you got to know how to close ass to get girls to come back to your party i've been in situations where i've had like like hotel suites and I couldn't get girls to come back but think of like the swag you got to have to be like hey girl you want to come back to my party I'm fucking throwing my party on this graveyard over here that <laughs> think of the think Dang, of the dude. game you got to have I don't know how would you how would you get a girl to come back to your party on a graveyard let's see if you got that kind of game oh bro I mean you could just be like you want to see a dead body <laughs> <laughs> I got him his parties were legendary people saw it as an opportunity to um i guess get the actual experience of the hawaiian way of life his family was very welcoming they brought people together they brought relationships to get together and the whole aikau family actually saw it as a chance to merge cultures and to show people how to do hawaii the the right way how to how to experience hawaii the way it's intended to be experienced. And I think uh, one of the lines in the movie, because we got a lot of our information. I know I got my information from the 30 for 30 that ESPN did. They did a good job with it. And I recommend everybody watch it. Take the time to watch the ESPN 30 for 30. It's wonderful. Yeah, it should be. It's fucking dope. They wanted to educate people through a welcoming approach as opposed to dealing with differences through confrontation. Eddie's wife, Linda Ibsen, actually would say that Eddie wanted people to love the islands as much as he did. And also, you got to think of that role, too. The, the role that love plays in, in facing fear. You know, Eddie had a deep love for his family. He had a deep love for his homeland. A deep love for his people. A love for his life. And a love for his waves. So, ultimately, this leads to Eddie Aikau becoming the first ever lifeguard of Waimea Bay. And that happened in 1967. I think that it's, a, it's an accolade to be able to be nominated for something. They were like... Yo, you're supposed to have a high school diploma, bro, but you don't even, and we still want you to be the lifeguard. Like, you're supposed to have that as a minimum requirement, but what can we do to get you to be the lifeguard? Because you're obviously the best suited here. You sw- you swimming ass, ripping up waves. Do you even know why they call it Waimea Bay? 
because most people would be like, why me? Before they wipe out, bro. You know what I'm saying? So That fucking makes sense. That fucking makes sense. Um, an important stat before we move forward about Eddie Aikau, if you can associate his life and times with a, a statistic, this guy, in his time as a lifeguard, attempted over 500 saves and didn't lose a single person. Zero fatalities on his watch. A definite yeah. guardian of the waters. You know, someone that was... I feel, I feel like uh, I feel like we're afraid of even just the simple fact that, like, like now that he dropped out of high school, everybody's afraid of that. You know, they were afraid of that, dropping out of high school. Like, what? What? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like, what? But, uh, shoot, you know, he ended up, look what he did as a contributor to society, man. And, yeah. I mean, Saved practically over, over 500 saves, man. And in 1973, Eddie's brother Clyde, he'll become the first Hawaiian to win the Duke Kahanamoku uh, surfing competition. And he was proud of his he was proud of his brother. But everybody knew. Here's the thing. Everybody knew with the way Eddie was surfing that if the waves were at the 30 to 40 foot range on that day, Eddie would have definitely taken the championship. But they were a little bit they were smaller waves. So uh, Eddie's younger brother with a different style uh, ended up taking the Duke. Hawaii is finally enjoying their first fucking surfing, professional surfing championship win. The local boy wins it. So Hawaii is on cloud nine. Everybody's happy. And then in 1974, the fucking Australians hit the surfing scene, baby. Nice. So here's what's crazy about the Australians hitting that surfing scene. They came with a new style. It wasn't about the big waves. It was about how stylistic you can be with your board how fast you can be, how you can cut in and out. It was just a different style as opposed to Eddie's big wave style. In uh, 1974, the Eddie was uh, taken first, second, and third place by Australians. And they were talking hella shit. How would an Australian sound talking shit on Hawaiian? Look at you, blummy, blummy bastard, you dark blummy bastard. <laughs> Oi, you think these waves are yours, huh? Oh, Oi. Hey, you float away, you coconut. Hey, you dang go your baby. <laughs> oh, fuck, dude. There's actually a story behind that. You know where that story came from? It was a murder case where an Australian girl actually said a dingo ate her baby. It's a famous murder case. Damn, dude. Can you please just have it stricken from the record? The last stricken one from minute the uh, in conversation of my life. I just realized how racist I am. But, uh, Oi, hey, you know what? We're the best surfers. <laughs> I can do the Samoan one too. We we have the best surfers there. See, um, <laughs> self racist. That was everything. just your that was just your normal voice. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> you think just because you're brown, you're the best surfers? But guess what? Australia's here, and we brought beer, <laughs> and we also Australia. brought weed. We've got Dude, the best weed. You know, we've got the best everything. <laughs> You think you've got the Dude, best I, marijuana, mate? Is that John Wayne from Australia? That was, that was the fucking Australian John Wayne. <laughs> All right, so, so yeah, John the Australians Wayne start cop. talking shit on the Hawaiian surfers, and they're just trying to get, they're just trying to get attention, and that's that's why most professional athletes talk shit. They're trying to get attention to who they are as athletes, get in the magazines. They're flamboyant, saying that they're not the Hawaiians' waves; they're Australian waves. The Australians run run the waves, but here's the thing: they're not in tune with how fucking proud the Hawaiian people are. No one told the fucking Australians that they need to chill out. So locals start to get pissed. And when they see one of these Australians on a beach surfing or kicking it or hanging out after surfing, they get a group of Hawaiians together and beat his ass. Like That's just how it goes. Oh, like, you're going to talk shit, we're going to beat your ass. But it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's becoming not a good experience for the Australians. And it's getting to a point to where a uh, local Hawaiian crime lord puts a hit out on one of the uh, the Australian surfers. So because they come and start talking all that Australian shit, shit, mate, oi, oi, bruv. Would you like a Chips Ahoy? <laughs> all of a sudden, he gets a freaking contract out on his life. So this is where Eddie steps in and says enough's enough. You know, he's... Hey, hold on. You, you kind of said life. You said life. Life? Did I? Life. Kind of oi, oi, mate. Contract out of life. Took a contract out of me life, mate. <laughs> See? You start talking that mess, you start talking like him, bro. Oi, oi. Well, who's you on, <laughs> So this is where Eddie decides to step in. Here's the thing. Eddie's all about national coverage, but he doesn't want the Hawaiian Islands to be seen in a negative light. 
So Eddie actually goes and intercepts the Australian surfers, pulls all those guys out of the hotel room where they're sending a hitman to come fucking murder people. Eddie takes them, ushers them away, puts them in another spot. Then Eddie has the balls to go talk to this this organized crime lord from Hawaii and say, hey, this is how we, we can't do it like this. This is going to be bring negative you mean, press. You mean his best friend or one of his homies. <laughs> Yeah, right. One of his homies. He goes, all right, we can't do it like this. This is going to be negative press on Hawaiian people. It's going to make everybody look bad here and we can't have it go down like this. So Eddie we arranges negative light. No, no negative light. <laughs> negative light. <laughs> Listen, mate, we only here to surf, mate. And maybe smoke a little weed every now and then, mate. So Eddie arranges a meeting between the Hawaiian organized crime lord and the Australian surfers to make peace. It all worked out. They made peace. They came to an agreement. And I'm pretty fucking sure that the agreement went a little like this. Oi, oi, listen, mate. We didn't mean any of that garbage we were talking on the magazines and on the radios. But I've got a good man that makes some good weed out in Australia. He's a good grower. We're going to bring all the weed you want or I'll be a koala's nutsack. Dang. No, shake on, shake on that, mate. So I'm, I'm pretty sure they arranged some. <laughs> Fuck, do we actually have listeners in Australia, dude? We have. <laughs> you won't, you won't write us an email, Mike. Think of the, uh, what actually went down in that meeting. I'm pretty sure there was some type of fucking handshake over some paraph, uh, over some paraphernalia cha- exchange or something well, like that. What do you I think? I guarantee, I guarantee. At least at one point, the drug dealer said, "I know, like." <laughs> well, you know, you know, brah, Eddie, brah, I know like I know like when he says the stuff that he said in the papers, brah. <laughs> I know like I don't like that you say what do you say in the paper, brah. <laughs> and that and that, my friends, is how Maui Wowie was created. I knew it, man. I knew it. <laughs> That's fucking I it. Heard, you just, like I felt you were gonna say Maui Wowie because I was like, wow, is that how Maui Wowie was created? <laughs> Fuck yeah, great minds think alike. In all seriousness, though, Eddie was a lifeguard again. He saved Australians from certain death. You know, it's, it's a oh, situation. My that... head's going to explode. I didn't even realize where you're going with that. So he was saving lives on and off land, bro. Fuck off yeah. land and on land. Without a doubt. After that, Eddie brought the Australian and Hawaiian culture together. And it's almost like the, the cultures have merged. And if you if you think of like surfing, you probably think Hawaii first, of course. Waimea Bay, Maui. So you think of those places first, and then immediately after that, you probably think of Australia and like South Africa, right? When you think of surfing, so they all kind of merged I and became before that, bro. America, America, surfing's American. Florida, shore. That's where surfing I'll was surf invented. The internet before I come number two. <laughs> <laughs> Internet's the only place I surf. Goddamn it! <laughs> all right. In 1977, Eddie would finally win the Duke. Uh, with a simple strategy, and this is the kind of the culmination of this, right? Fears, overcoming fears. But regardless of what fear he was feeling, Eddie's simple strategy was just to wait for his kind of wave. The biggest, scariest, loudest, fastest wave that you're going to see, and Eddie paddled out toward them. The ones that no one would surf, and no one would surf them for the simple reason of those are Eddie's waves. I'll try to do what I can on my waves, but those big ones, Eddie surfs those. Eddie goes to those. And it wasn't like a respect thing. It was like a fear of not doing well on those waves. Where Eddie knew which waves were his, he waited and took them. That should be a message to all of us, right? I know I said it earlier, but regardless of what kind of fear you're dealing with, just take your waves. Be fit enough to know what you bring to the table, right? from a mental fitness standpoint, from a physical fitness standpoint, and just take your wave. I think you hit it on the head, Hector. I mean, if you look at it, it's a perfect metaphor. And I'm all about metaphors. So first of all, you got to put yourself in the pool to even be ni- next to a wave. And and we're talking the metaphors. A wave is opportunity, right? But uh, we could also just keep talking about the wave itself because it's beautiful. It has its own unique characteristics it's once of one of one of a kind just like opportunities in this world and it's not that you're missing opportunities to say you don't grab it or it's not meant for you or somebody else grabs it or you choose to pass 
but that wave is going to crash. But even if you pick up a wave, that wave is going to have a life cycle. So you will be able to ride that wave, and there will be a high and a low, and it will be over with. So you might as well also have to swim back out and get another opportunity. You know what I mean? So it's just the more you fail, the more you surf, the more waves you get to ride, the more you swim back out. And uh, you just can't be afraid to do that. You know, you might be tired or whatever. So that's why you should get in shape so you can take more opportunities. Oh, yeah, man. That was beautiful. I can't say anything more about that and Eddie's first win. But what that did was it catapulted him into even more of a national presence. And it would lead actually to the next uh, stage of Eddie's story, which is the, the stage of the story that I would like to call the Hokulea. The Hokulea. <laughs> well, what the Hokulea is... A hokulea is a ancient water vessel that the first Hawaiians used to find the islands of Hawaii. Now that's Hawaiian. Yeah, that's Hawaiian lore. <laughs> that's Hawaiian uh, history, right? Oh, sorry, I don't want to disrespect. No, no. The misconception is I don't know. I, I feel like this is something we should all like let people know growing up that you know the Hawaiian people were seen as people that accidentally found the islands. Oh, they, they crash landed on the islands because their navigational tools weren't advanced enough to actually get them to the islands. So they just fucking happened upon them and they crashed onto the it, islands. And that's how Hawaii was founded by the Hawaiian people. Right. So that was a misconception that was being told by the white settlers of Hawaii. At the time of the, the 60s, the expansion of tourism and all that, the Hawaiian people were pissed. They were angry that their history was being yeah. trampled, that no one was, you know, respecting certain uh, sacred areas of their land. And they were being pushed mm -hmm. around and kept off of beaches or wherever, kept off of areas of their own land, their own islands. So they did this as a protest. They decided to recreate the journey of the Hokulea, which is uh, traveling from Hawaii to Tahiti. It's a 5,000 mile journey. I like how right? you said that. And you're using you're using ancient navigational tools on the Hokulea. So to honor the Hawaiian people, the captain of the Hokulea decided to invite Eddie Aikau to be on the team. If of course he he made the uh, initial trials and everything, and Eddie did. He passed the trials with flying colors. So they set a date for 3/16/1978 to set course for Tahiti on the Hokulea. Remember, it's a ancient. It's a it's an a ancient water vessel. It's a boat. It's a sailboat with ancient <laughs> navigational yeah, tools. Yeah. <laughs> it's an ancient water vessel in search of the Hawaiian islands. The yep. I just want to get this straight. So the Hokulea, like, why? I, I don't understand, like, why he wanted to all of a sudden turn and just do that. Like, he was, was he bored of surfing or something? Like, no, it was a protest. He wanted. Right? He wanted to stand with his Hawaiian people in protest saying that, no, 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 our ancient traveling or our ancient navigational skills were sufficient enough to find the island. Oh, that's right. Because the perception so it was, a celebration. was... Yes. It was a celebration that, look, we, we didn't do this by accident. Yo, but check it out then. That's what really bothered me is that when I was watching the video, I remember them saying on the day of that they're starting out on the Hokulea, that it's all it's all like ominously black and just gloomy and the wind was so freaking fierce it was obvious to anybody that they should not do the trip but it was pride that made them go like i was i was dying on the inside bro i was sitting there the, the like, thing is like, nobody don't go don't go and they're like no we can't we can't make this whole big uproar everybody showed up we gotta go yeah the thing that's is like, they had they had over five thousand people to see them off and they didn't want to call it off because of all the gathering everybody yeah. there to celebrate so they said hey it was high winds and they thought they could they could definitely take on the winds. They were afraid. Um, they were afraid to let people down, bro. What I, that's what I was trying to say. And I was like, yo, see? Oh, yeah. So on that day, March 16, 316, 1978, Eddie Aikau and the Polynesian Voyaging Society set sail for Tahiti. About six hours into their voyage, they would start experiencing high winds, uh, waves crashing into the Hokulea, rocking it back and forth, crew members were um, given an all-hands-on-deck order. Everybody had to come up to help because the uh, the ship actually capsized at 12 a.m. on the very next morning, 3.17, and the crew was actually in the water clinging to the wreckage. So Eddie and the whole crew of the Hokulea were in the ocean. 
that's where that's that's where the uh, that's where the troubles actually hit a crescendo. And this is where Eddie's that's religion. what I try to imagine. Like you said, imagine yourself on the cemetery. I couldn't imagine being clinging to a life raft. You know what I mean? Like yeah, think like, of that. You're in the middle was, of the ocean. Yeah. Mm. The crew of the Hokulea spend a night adrift. Not adrift. They were actually in the water, so they're clinging to the wreckage of the Hokulea. So they spent all night. You know, they had food. The Hokulea was stocked with food and stuff like that, so they had some stuff to eat. But you have to think, you're you're in the water. You're out in the middle ocean. I think by then, they were maybe 12, 15 miles away from the island. They could see the islands, but they were, you know, 12, 15 miles away. Right at about midday, because Eddie had asked before, but right at about midday, Eddie Ikel finally talked the captain of the Hokulea into letting him go. Now, as a captain, you don't... I'm not too sure on the rules of being a captain, but... I know he, um, he, the captain of the Hokulea, talked about how he wouldn't have given Eddie permission if Eddie didn't communicate to him that he can do it, you know, he can go. But by around noon on that day, Eddie Aikau got permission from the captain to take his surfboard and paddle to land for help. And that's where the crew of the Hokulea all gathered together. They gave Eddie oranges. They made him a necklace of oranges and... Eddie got his surfboard because he had a surfboard on the uh, on the Hokulea. Eddie got his surfboard and he paddled out to get help. Now that's another thing you're talking about here, fear, right? So you have different levels of fear going on. You have fear of the, the wreckage, the people, the crew. You know, are we going to be found? We need help. How long can we hold on? I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to stay in these waters for too long holding on to wreckage you have the fear of you know what's in the water of course what's in this damn water you know what's gonna it's gonna get me there's a lot of elements of fear and then you have one guy saying no i'm gonna paddle he actually asked him once before and the captain said no you're staying with the crew i wish and, he would i wish he would have not been so scared to stick up there because i feel the first time he asked was like oh, i could see the land right now like mm-hmm. let me just swim i don't want to be so tired you know yeah like, well, and here's a, what, after a couple more hours, now he's more tired. Yeah. Well, here's what happens, right? People that were not people, but the crew of the Hokulea said that when Eddie left, it gave them extra hope that he would definitely get to the shore and he would definitely get help. So it extended their time in that water and it helped him combat fear. It gave them something to hold on to. It gave them hope that help would come. And in survival situations, everybody talks about hope. You have to maintain hope and you have to be positive that you will survive. Eddie being known as the hero, you know, no one died on his watch. Eddie being known as that person, they all believed he was going to go and he was going to come back. Eventually, the rescue choppers would show up at midnight on the 18th and, and pull the crew out of the out of the water. I'm pretty sure a lot of them were expecting to see Eddie on that rescue chopper. Like, okay, Eddie went and got his choppers. We're good. He did it. But Eddie was nowhere to be found. Uh, he wasn't on the rescue choppers. And when they got back to shore, families were waiting for the crew of the Hokulea. Eddie's family was all there. And as everybody was being emptied out of the rescue choppers, Eddie would not make it back to shore. A statewide search kicked off. Rescue choppers, boats, searchers everywhere looking for Eddie Ikel, trying to find him out to sea. It would go roughly about 10 days, and about 10 days into the into the search, the patriarch of the family, family uh, Solomon Ikel, Eddie's father, would pull everyone together for a press conference and finally say, stop. He told Hawaii to just stop. It was a simple message. Stop looking for my son. And that's when the search stopped. I wish, uh, you know, like we could uh, we could know what's going through his head and, you know, uh, I, I don't know, you know, like to be honest, it's sad, bro, for sure, and uh, I just wonder if there's any anything else that is like not on the surface, you know, like I find it a little weird that he sur- he he goes off and a little while later they say his uh his vest comes floating back. You know, and then, oh, and then now the helicopters come all of a sudden, like, they made Eddie go? Like, I don't get it, you know? Um, I I don't know, man. I'm a a little bit of a conspiracy theorist on this one, so I would would want to talk to their family before I can speak on it, because obviously on the surface, it's sad. This is not supposed to happen. I wish it happened another way, but 
though he died and it wasn't, you know, hopefully in vain because he motivated people to hang on longer. Uh, it, it definitely is a big symbolic gesture. So I'm just trying to be like real though too. Like, bro, like, damn, dude. I hope he wasn't trying to like unite people on a higher level and then somebody assassinated him or something. You feel me? 100%. Let's wrap this up, man. So in, in 1986, in honor of Eddie Ical, Quicksilver would hold a big wave invitational and they would name it the Eddie. The surfing competition was ran under one stipulation that they would only surf if the waves were um, above 30 feet. So sometimes it's not even held in honor of Eddie as well. You have to get 30 foot plus waves to, to do the competition, which is pretty legit, man. And some of the most famous surfers have done that competition in honor of Eddie Ical. And at age 66, his brother Clyde Ical would surf to open the Eddie. Uh, I think this was just recently. I want to say it was it was just earlier this year. Clyde Ical surfed to open up the Eddie, and it, it also created a, a nationwide message. Or I don't, I don't know if you want to call it phenomenon. You know what? I know I know what you're trying to say, man. The dude's a legend, bro. Like, yeah. There's just no other. The, like, it's almost like it's, it's how the story has to go. But I'm not trying to. I don't wish he was dead or anything. I wish he was still here. But like legends, they just have such a big a big story all the time, and it's just they do it like it's nothing. Like you know what I'm saying? Like he just oh yeah. I just inspired a, you know, a whole island of people here, no problem. Uh, oh, I'll swim back and try to save everybody. Who's gonna volunteer? Freaking Eddie, man. Eddie will go, bro. Like that's what they'd say, right? I will so, say this though: the Hawaiian culture is beautiful. So yeah, the Hawaiian culture is beautiful, and they would uh, rally around his family and support his cause with a bunch of bumper stickers and T-shirts. I know, I don't know if you've seen it, but um, they sell these bumper stickers and T-shirts that say "Eddie would go." And it's just a call to action. It's a call to bravery. It's it's a call to be a little bit braver and, and just do something bigger for, not for yourself, but for other people. Because that's what Eddie would do. And that's what, that's the spirit or that's Eddie's mana, right? That they talk about in 30 for 30. You know, Eddie would go. He would go into those dangerous waters, not because he wanted to glorify himself, but because he knew they were his find your own would go like what's yours you know what's what's your would go find your own if you could put your name before would go like what would you go into what would you do to better the world you know eddie would go into waters to save people to better the world eddie would go and pull the australians from a fucking hit put on by a drug lord to create you know cultural ties you know eddie would Surf the biggest waves because they were his and because he was Hawaiian. That was that was deep, dog. Do you have anything else you want to? Do you have anything else you want to add to Eddie? I feel like we put a nice bow on that episode. No, man, you said it beautifully, man. Like you know, I didn't even want to downplay it. That's why I was just like, I was getting my food. I was giving my popcorn and just listening. Uh, Yeah, yeah, man. Like I would, I would cross my fears to to you know help somebody out. That's essentially what I would try to dedicate myself to. Oh yeah, there it goes. Um, well, I had I had fun covering this episode with you. Say say thanks again for joining me on another yeah, thanks, episode man. of Talking Some Muscle. Remember, guys, if we mess something up and you want us to re-rack something, send us an email at talkingsomemuscle at gmail dot com. That's T A L K I N S O M E muscle at gmail dot com. You can hit us up on our Instagram also. DM us T A L K I N S O M E muscle on Instagram. You can find Say Say Leo at Big Body Say. But yeah, hit us up on all communication, social media platforms. We're open to it. On our next episode, we're going to do things a little bit differently. We're going to do a watch along. You and I, Say Say, and anybody else. If you want to bring a friend, bring a friend. We're going to be watching The Fucking Predator starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. We're going to do something different, something new. Hopefully everybody will like it. But for our episode 10, you and I are going to watch The Predator and we're going to make commentary on it. We're going to talk about how the muscles in that movie created a pattern of blockbusters in the cinematic world. So join us for The Predator next week. And remember to get to the chapa. Yeah, remember everybody. Heroes come in all shapes, forms, sizes, colors, genders, everything. Do not disparage the true spirit of a hero. Do not disparage the cultural importance of people that love the land they come from. I would say take the time to learn more about a culture and to appreciate the complexities 
of a culture before automatically thinking that you know they're just doing things wrong because it's not like you that's an element of fear there so motherfuckers don't be afraid and remember if you don't got it don't show it let me tell you what melvin toast is packing right here i've got 411 posi track out back 750 double pumper edelbrock intakes ford over 30 11 to 1 pop-up pistons turbo jet 390 horsepower we're talking some fucking Can't, I'm not going to say no dick pics because then we're going to get hella dick pics from people if I say no dick pics. Send them all. <laughs> you can hit okay. us up. DM us on the Instagram. Uh, talking some muscle. Send us your wood. <laughs>